Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm delighted to have joining us today, Carolyn Buck-Luce. She's a strategist, executive coach, and author of the recently published book, Epic, The Women's Power Playbook. Today, we're going to be talking about creating a future by design, not default. So Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. What a great thing to talk about. And write about. (laughs) Let's jump in then to your leadership journey. What were some of the biggest inflection points you faced that got you from high school as an activist to now an author of a brilliant book? Leadership starts really early. And I'll ask all of the listeners, all of you, to just remember when was the first time you actually realized that you were part of something bigger and that there was a purpose larger than yourself. For me, that actually happened when I was eight years old. So I have to even go back before high school. But it was 1960. John F. Kennedy was running for president. We were in the middle of a Cold War. I remember hiding under my desk because of atomic bomb drills or hiding in your locker as if that would help you. My mother and father were very socially conscious themselves in terms of the civil rights movement and the women's movement. So all of a sudden, John F. Kennedy's running for president. It's televised for the first time. And he said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And that woke me up. I thought he was talking to me. Leadership really started then because I was like reporting for duty, sir. And then I needed a plan. Now what? And the farthest that I could think was 10 years later when I'd be 18 and going to college, leaving home. And that was actually the beginning of creating my first decade game. I didn't call it that at the time, but it was when I began to take responsibility for the fact that I needed to figure out how did I answer JFK's call? That brought me to studying Russian at Georgetown University. And my first job was on a special assignment for Voice of America, which was part of the State Department, to go to Russia, the USSR, and tell America's story, which I spent two years doing. And that was really sort of the beginning of the journey. It sounds like a fascinating journey. You also talked about being an activist in high school. Many of us were worrying about makeup and nail polish or the male equivalent of pep rallies and first cars. And you were already joining the world in a way that was looking at global issues. Well, coming of age in the 60s, there was an awful lot happening. It's interesting because it was pre-internet. Now, I know For some of you listeners, it's hard to imagine a pre-internet world, but it was a world in turmoil that we were aware of because of the Vietnam War, because of JFK, because of politics, because of assassinations. And in my high school, we were integrated, which meant busing was happening, and we were having racial tension in our school. Again, starting at eight by being sort of waking up and deciding I was a baby citizen and on call, on duty, I was very involved in all of those things that were happening. And I actually organized a walkout from high school to protest the secret bombings of Cambodia that were happening under the Nixon administration. We were also close to the university. 
So we were in high school marching with the university students in protest of the Vietnam War. So even in the pre-internet days, the turmoil was clear, and it was a conversation around the table, just like politics is now a conversation around most tables in America. It was at that time. It didn't even occur to me that I should be doing anything other than that. And I will also say that for many of us, we get inspired by what happens close to home. My mother was one of only two women in her law school class at the University of Chicago in the 40s. And she, in the county that we lived in upstate New York, she was leading every President Johnson Great Society program. She was the executive director of the War on Poverty, the Crusade for Opportunity. So it just was a natural thing for me to do my part. And I think that's the question for leaders, which is, what's the job? What's the job? And in high school, it was really clear. The job was not to study biology. The job was to be able to protest when we weren't allowed to talk about the secret bombings of Cambodia. But on the other hand, there were school-sponsored events we had to be at because General Motors was coming in to tell us about recruiting for cars or something like that. So I think it just came naturally. When you think about, for all of you listening, thinking about who inspired you, you're either probably inspired by someone or motivated to act differently than someone. But leadership starts early. It's a brilliant point. And one of the exercises we often have our class participants do is look at what are the big punctuation points in your life and what are the themes you took from that. And I hear really strongly the importance of leadership leading your own life, leading the community. And as that expanded for you, even early, leading in a global context, what do you say for yourself is the role of leadership? Well, that's a big question, Maureen. Sorry. (laughs) Well, first of all, let me just say that I believe we're all on a journey of leadership. And I don't talk about leadership just in work. I think the desire to be a leader at home, at work, and in the world is what we as humans do. That's what we listen to because we're listening, whether we know it or not, to some call, some purpose that's larger than ourselves. And then there are different times that we get a different understanding of what it looks like. So let me give you an example. Let's go to that first job in the Soviet Union. I want you to imagine I had a life-size American home. 10,000 Soviet citizens would come through it every day. And there were 20 of me, 20 Americans, who were there to talk about America. And at any point in time, I might have 200 or 300 people around me. Sort of imagine sort of Epcot or something like that, some kind of an exhibition. And we had been briefed. You know, I was like a walking Sears catalog in terms of knowing dates and prices and all sorts of things to explain about America. But what I realized going into a closed society, that no one was going to listen to what I had to say if they didn't trust me. And that I had maybe 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds to be able to establish some type of personal connection, some type of heart-to-heart connection, not head-to-head connection, in order to create a field of trust so that they would even believe anything I had to say. Because I was on a mission, tell America's story, spread detente, let them know that we want peace. So what does a leader do? A leader has to establish trust. And that can only happen in a heart-to-heart. 
there is no transformation in the information. So that was, for example, a big aha as I began to understand, so what do leaders do? That was the beginning of your career. Now, decades later, you've gone through this starting at 8 to 18, the decade game. Then you did presumably 18 to 28. Tell us about how that has looked for you and give us also a little more information about what is the decade game. One of my favorite topics. So the decade game starts with being able to actually articulate your purpose. Now, this is interesting. Probably the most important question in your entire life is the hardest to answer. Why are you here? So the decade game starts with being able to articulate purpose. Now, the way I try to explain it, and I got it when I was eight, although not necessarily in these precise words. For me, purpose is your theory of how the world gets better, that you believe you are called to make your unique contribution. So for me, as I was influenced by mother, my mother, influenced by JFK, what came to me, and again, I didn't have these words then, I have them now, is that one of the ways the world gets better is when courageous leaders find their magic, trust their magic, and use that magic honorably in order to create a world that works. Now, I love the word courage. It comes from the word core, heart, and it means to go forward with your heart in your mouth at times of doubt, fear, and uncertainty. And for me, that was my mother. That was John F. Kennedy. As I began to experience the world, in international banking and Wall Street and management consulting. Instead, I was really looking outside of whatever company I was in and watching how the institutions of the day were no longer meeting the needs of society. That bigger call, what changes that? Courageous leaders who tend to come from out of power in order to be able to change toxic power, to use power for good. So each of us has a purpose. We might not be able to land it, but chances are you knew it when you were five or six or seven. Maybe it was around justice. Maybe it was around fairness. Maybe it was around equality. But there was probably something that broke your heart or moved your heart or made you pick your head up and say, wait a second, that's not right. I should do something about that. So the decade game starts with identifying your purpose, and that doesn't change decade by decade by decade. What does change is what's my mission? And that requires you to imagine 10 years in the future and answer a very simple question. Wouldn't it be cool if I knew myself and was known by the people who love me and the people who count on me as, and then you come up with an absolute wonderful, iconic, evocative job description. Maureen, do you remember playing Mad Libs? A little bit. I haven't played many games. Well, so let me explain it. So Mad Libs is you would take a story or sentence and some of the words would be blocked out and you would be told, okay, put an adjective in here, put a noun in here, and you would come up with crazy words and then it would totally change the story. Mm, okay. So the decade game has you come up with a Mad Lib, an avatar, to answer the question, wouldn't it be cool if I knew myself and was known by the people who love me and the people who count on me as? And then you come up with in a wild adjective, a fantastic noun, a compelling verb, a targeted object, and an epic outcome. 
So for example, at 60, I retired, matriculated. We had mandatory retirement at my consulting firm, EY. I was a partner. I was leading a billion-dollar healthcare business. I was the global leader for healthcare at EY. I matriculated at 60, and I set a game for myself for 70, that wouldn't it be cool if I knew myself and was known by the people who love me and the people who count on me as an organizational shaman inspiring humans to live epic lives. Organizational shaman inspiring humans to live epic lives. Now, I had no idea what that meant. I'd never met a shaman. But once you set an intention and imagine it, your brain thinks you did it. That's why visioning is so powerful. To envision a future of your becoming, if you were able to spend 10 years leaning into being the leader you long to be at home, at work, and in the world, all at the same time, how would you be known? And then you have your leadership instructions. So immediately... On day one of the game, I would say, hmm. no matter what choice I was facing, I would say, what would the organizational shaman inspiring humans to live epic lives do here? So, for example, the week after I matriculated from EY, I got remarried. Instead of having a honeymoon on a beach in Fiji, I didn't think an organizational shaman would do that. So instead, my husband and I climbed Kilimanjaro on our honeymoon because I thought, well, I'll learn something about that. The decade game is about leaning into your purpose and then defining what's next in your leadership. As you long to grow in your leadership at home, at work, and in the world, what experiences are you going to say yes to? What knowledge do you want to learn? What skills do you want to practice? Who do you want to learn from? And who needs to learn from you? It's a commitment to be epic. And that's why the book is not called The Decade Game. It's called Epic. What I want to make sure I underline is epic doesn't mean, in this case, the adjective of bigger than, better than, greater than, master of the universe, king of the hill. Because what I learned about climbing Kilimanjaro is it's not about getting to the top. It's about getting to the center. And that's what leadership is. It's getting to your center of gravity, of knowing that you are on purpose, intentionally, and that you are connecting to the power that's inside you, and they're using that power for good. I also climbed Kilimanjaro. So as you're saying that, I'm thinking secretly, yes, yes. And for me, it was also about getting to the top. But I had this sentiment that and I don't talk about this publicly because it does sound a little woo-woo maybe, that I was only going to make it to the top of that mountain if the mountain would allow me because there were so many ways that I could not do it. I'm not a phenomenal athlete. When I did it, I was working at Accenture, so long hours, management consulting. I think I had just left and started my own firm, so it was also a huge transition for me and it was also an inside journey. What am I doing past the consulting firm? Who am I being? Not just how do I get to the top, but who am I being in the context of my life? Wow. I am so happy to hear that you had that similar experience. You know, <laughs> the mountain was a shaman for me. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, which you'll really appreciate, which helps people who haven't climbed Kilimanjaro get a sense of this. 
on the day we were summiting, and it was just my husband and I and our guides, I was not in good shape. And we're starting at base camp about 15,500 feet, going up to 19,000. And I was stopping every step. And I was trying to do it through my heart. And I had turned such a shade of gray. My husband says, this is not what you want your new bride to look like. And he finally said, stop, Carolyn. You're going to have a heart attack here. You got to stop. And we've got to reassess. We don't have to go to the top. We're going so slow that by the time we get to the top, it'll be dark to get down. That's not good. He said, Carol, I want you to look inside you and find the part of you who knows how to do this. And if you can't find that part, let's go down. And I went inside and reflected. And then I realized that I had two things that could help me, and the mountain had the other. I had my breath, and I had my quads, which are the largest muscle group. And the mountain had gravity. You have to imagine that we're on this incredibly steep slope that all I had to do was take a breath, fall into the mountain in terms of a lunge, meaning using the mountain's gravity, and then just stand. Breath, fall, stand. Breath into a lunge with the gravity of the mountain, and then just stand up. And I lunged for two hours without stopping, and we got to the top. And that was the power of recognizing that we all have a part of us who knows what to do. The term epic that I wanted to share is epic actually means a long-form story of daring do, daring to do. It's a saga. You know, we talk about the Iliad, the epic of the Iliad or the epic of the Odyssey. It's a long-form story of daring do, daring to do. And for leaders, it's not just daring to do which is important. It's also daring to be. Daring to be afraid. Daring to unknow. Daring to be vulnerable. I'll tell you another real inflection point for me about learning about leadership. Going back a decade, the decade game 50 to 60. So at 50, I was the head of corporate development, all of the alliances, investments, and partnerships at EY. I'm looking at 60 mandatory retirement I didn't want to retire and be known as a retired partner of an accounting firm. So I set my decade game for 60. Wouldn't it be cool if I was known as a consigliore for public and private leaders? So I'm doing my decade. I'm having a great time, very powerful. And at 56, my husband at the time gets a call from our doctor and is told he has three months to live. He turned to me. He was an amazing man, a great minister in New York City. He turned to me and he said, Carolyn, I'm the battlefield. You're the general. Go do your work. The good news is he lived three years instead of three months. So he was able to get done a lot of what he wanted to accomplish. He was able to finish the book he was writing, wrote another book, was able to do a victory lap. But we had a thousand families in our congregation, children. He had a mother. I was spending a lot more time on my own spiritual journey, committed helping my husband die well, ministering to the congregation who loved him, his children, his mother. And in those three years, it was the best three years of my business. Why? Because I was showing up more vulnerable. I was asking for more help. I was trusting the universe more. I was taking myself less seriously. 
I was creating space for others. This daring to do and daring to be, knowing that this journey of leadership, you're on the job from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep. doesn't make any difference what you're doing. And what you learn in one venue is critical for the next. It all works together. Thank you for sharing your story about your husband. And I'm sorry about his passing. As you were talking about vision, one of the things that strikes me is for me, it is as much about what I'm growing and becoming or stepping into my own potential as it is the impact I make in the world. And so often I think when people write vision statements, I'm going to be the global partner or the biggest or the best, which is an important part. But there's also the sense of the inside, whether you call it spiritual or whatever terms, because I realize our listeners have a range of terms for that, that inner evolution to be the person that is the best version of Maureen. Yeah, absolutely. Then there's the doing. Transformation is an inside job. And so I'll tell you a little bit more about the decade game. So it turns out there's 87,600 hours in a decade. If you sleep eight hours a night, which I'm a big proponent of, that leaves 50,000 hours and change. And the decade game is about taking responsibility for being the CEO, what I call the chief experience officer, and the CIO, the chief investment officer of your decade. And as the CIO and the CEO, you've got time, trust, treasure, and talent to invest. And you can invest it in five different areas of focus. You know, if you follow the sort of the Malcolm Gladwell coined the term, the 10,000 hours, it didn't come from Malcolm Gladwell, but 10,000 hours. So in the decade game, you've got five what I call domains of mastery, each one worth 10,000 hours. It starts with self. What's the inner work? What's your sense of self? What stories are you going to let go of? The stories of I am not enough or I am too much that no longer serve you. What's your relationship with your body, your self-care? That's 10,000 hours. The next domain of mastery is your relationship on a one-on-one -on -one basis with the people you love. For some crazy reason, it's hardest to be your best self with the people you love the most. What's that work that you haven't yet done so that when you show up as your best self, you give them the invitation and permission to be their best selves? So what's that work with your children, with your parents, with your siblings? The third domain of mastery is what some people call their job. I don't call it their job because your job is the becoming in all areas. Their job is getting to that decade destination. So I call that your craft. So no matter what they're paying you to do, how are you going to hone it into a thing of beauty that has your unique fingerprint on it that only you can do, Maureen? This podcast, for example, it's a thing of beauty that only you could do because you're bringing all of your magic to it and no one's got your magic. The fourth domain of mastery is a learning pillar, or maybe it's an unlearning pillar. How do you say yes to be curious about the world and follow your passions without having to have any goal associated with it. Maybe it's to be an amazing traveler. Maybe it's to practice art. Maybe it's to learn another language. Maybe it's to cook. Because innovation happens at the border of what you know and what you don't know. 
And then the last domain of mastery is contribution, which is who are the other masters out there who don't have your gifts, but have a similar purpose as you, where you want to be able to be all in, in what I call your four W's, your wealth, your wisdom, your work, and your worldly connection as a free and available contribution to others. So as you can see, what we're talking about is an integrated model of leadership, of growing in leadership at home, at work, and in the world, all in service of a purpose that has been with you since you've been a little girl. So what's your purpose, do you think, Maureen? The underlying theme is the same. The words change. It is certainly to evolve and become my best self because I can't be in service in the world ultimately if I'm not continuing to grow. And then the second piece is to create or help others evolve to be future ready leaders. And future ready is a new term for me and for us. But this idea that we're experiencing such massive change in our world leaders are the biggest leverage point and effective leadership will create a future for your eight grandchildren and those who will come beyond and ineffective leadership will potentially leave a planet that is less habitable than what we have now for future generations is something that seems incredibly irresponsible i can only make that contribution in the world by continuing to grow myself and modeling and doing podcasting and helping leaders in my role with my craft to make decisions and take actions. But also it's the being, it's the modeling, the being, it's having a conversation like this that shares not what a blog post would be that's all polished and perfect, but the things I'm struggling with now. How do I own my own shortcomings? I'm also working on the unlearning and where do I own my choices, the bad ones. It would be much more pleasant to blame someone else for some things that went wrong recently, but I've got to own that I made some choices that were not optimal. I'm almost 60 and I'm learning as much or more now than I did in my 30s and 40s and prior. It makes me realize that I want to say... Um... The book is called Epic, the Women's Power Play Book. Now, the decade game works for men or women. Trust me, my husband and all my sons have done the decade game and many of my colleagues. The book is part memoir, part manual, and then part manifesto. It is geared towards women because I think women have been navigating this leadership question in a man's world for longer than men have been navigating the leadership challenges at home. And therefore, we're, we're more prime for recognizing how challenging it is because we actually lead in the context of a lot of wounded masculine energy and distorted feminine energy, which impacts both men and women because we have both the yin and the yang in us, each of us. And we need to be on a healing journey. And women have to do it together because it's too hard to do it by yourself. And the reason I say that is I have not met a woman in the world, and I won't put you on the spot, Maureen, but I will say I have not met a woman in the world, including myself, who was not born to be a good girl. You're shaking your head because we know what that means. Absolutely. Universally. 
There are all sorts of things that good girls don't do. There's all sorts of things that good girls can't feel. There's all sorts of things that good girls must do. And every time we lean into power, connected to our purpose, and move out of the archetype of what a good girl does, we hit another character called Goldilocks. And we're told we're to this or to that and never just right. What I will say about women is that we are all guilty and no one's to blame. We didn't create those stories. We were born into those stories. But it keeps us from being as powerful as possible. Now, the other thing is I've not met a woman in the world who doesn't want to empower others, yet they're squeamish or slightly ambivalent about being as powerful as possible themselves. And let me tell you where I learned this. While I was at EY, I created a course that I taught at the Graduate School, Columbia, the School of International Affairs and Public Policy. I called it Women in Power. I taught it for 10 years. And what I found was that here were these women, full-time graduate students in their late 20s, early 30s. They wanted to change the world, just like I did when I was 18. And they hadn't even realized how much power they had already given away. Because the research shows that girls start compromising and leaking power at about five or six. And we don't even realize how much power we've leaked away. Death by a thousand cuts. And I created this course. I told people on day one, guess what? I grade on the full range from A to B. So stop worrying about your grade because that's what good girls do. I want you to lean into the work. And this was the work. No tests. Show up for class. Read a very eclectic reading list. Participate. And at the end of the term, write a personal power paper. Tell me what your purpose is. Tell me how you'll be known 10 years from now. And then do a current inventory of your power. All the different currencies, knowledge, beauty, relationships, persona. And then do a two-year action plan on how you're going to intentionally increase your power and use that power intentionally to make progress on your purpose. I taught that for 10 years. Everyone said it was the hardest class I took in graduate school, even though there wasn't a number in it. This journey of becoming is actually a journey of retrieval, of actually becoming your original self, connecting to the original instructions, which is use your gifts and dreams for good. You know, there's another parallel here. I taught innovative leadership at OSU, Ohio State. Similar, what's your purpose? What's your vision? Where are you going to be as you start your career? Where would you like it to go? And engineers took it because they thought it would be easier than engineering, <laughs> um, at least less time consuming. And I had them do things like meditate. And the only guidance was drinking is not considered meditating. <laughs> you can meditate in the shower. You can meditate sitting. You can meditate walking. You just have to be sober. Even something like that for five minutes a day was tough. I think every one of them at points wish they were back in an engineering class. And to really amplify your point that this inner work is challenging and crucial for all of us. I love the extension of adding power into that reflection, especially as women. And as you're talking about it, this thing I'm working on now is very much about giving away my power to, to other colleagues. There are places where I need to own that it's my company 
too much empowerment for others on the team means I'm abdicating. Even at 59, my relationship to power, I'm still leaking. I'm not a colander, but I'm not a complete bull. We're all guilty and no one's to blame on this one. Um, We're in a bigger story that we're trying to sort of navigate and work through. What I want to share is another challenge we have is, first of all, yes, it's how do we reclaim our power and then know how to best use it. But then the other nuance is you're turning 60. I just turned 70. There are different phases of your life that also impact this question, what's a leader's role now? Anyone listening who has children, you know that (laughs) your job with your little ones is different than your job as they get older. One way to think about phases of life is we have childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and there are different stages of adulthood. And then from there, you have elder and eventually essence. And you can't get to essence from warrior, you know, which is one of the phases of adulthood. You own your company, you're in charge of the family, you're the breadwinner, you know, you're the warrior in the world, top of your game. You can't get to elder from adolescence. You've got to go through all these stages. And each decade requires you to have an understanding of that chip. So, for example, my 60 to 70 decade was, I think, my first decade of elderdom. And part of what I needed to understand about power is how do I change my relationship with ambition? So how does ambition shift so that it doesn't show up as rock star, which is important in the warrior phase, but it shows up as servant, which is age appropriate for elder. I've now created my game for 80, 70 to 80, on the heels of some medical diagnoses that are concerning. I have a new theme for the 70 to 80 decade, which is how do I change my relationship with time to not be in the past, not be in the future, but really know how to be totally in the present. So even the understanding of power, and power, by the way, is not good or bad. It's just a current. It's like electricity or water. But to be able to have this question, how do I stay powerful, not give my power away, but use my power in an age-appropriate way that is connected to my purpose. It's a nuance. It keeps changing. One of the things I say is every decade can be your best decade yet. If you can be in integrity for what you know the work is and then feel good that you've done the work well. For me, source of suffering is when I don't know what my job is, when I don't know how do I do that well. And that tends to be at times of transition, growing your company, new members of your family, things happening, and it requires you to say, okay, what's my job now that's the most generative that I can be, that's in integrity with who I am? What does your next decade look like? I heard change relationship to time. Are you moving to essence? And what does that mean? You never know when essence is going to come. But I've had the experience of both my father dying in my arms and my late husband dying in my arms. And so I I have a sense of where I want to be when that happens. Light as a feather. No cares in the world. Having done an incredible victory lap in my head. (laughs) So I think this second decade of elderdom is getting prepared for essence. My mother's 94, so I'm not planning to go anytime soon. 
it's being able to get comfortable that it's now all about my presence. It's not about production and it's not about performance. My greatest contribution is showing up present with my presence. That's where the wisdom is and that I can back away from performance and production, which is very hard to do. I mean, it's easy to say, but very hard to do. I've never met a sale I didn't like. I've never met a challenge I don't want to take on. And the beauty of the decade game is you've got all the time in the world to be able to lean into this new growth. When I made the decision back 60 to 70 that I needed to change my relationship with ambition, I first thought, well, I would have to kill the rock star in order to be the servant. And I didn't want to kill the rock star. I love the rock star. What I realized is, no, I don't have to kill her. I just have to decommission her. No way I can always go back to her. But she taught me what it feels like to have the light shine on me. And my job as an elder is to take that light, grab it, and shine it on others. So I have a decade game at 80. At 80, I'm giving you advance warning. At 80, I will know myself and you will know me as a generational restorer, naming the dances that are longing to happen. I'm not even sure what that means, but that's my inquiry. What would the generational restorer naming the dances that are longing to happen, how would she show up for you? So you've gone from shaman to what is the term in your 70s? The 60 to 70 game was organizational shaman, inspiring humans to live epic lives. And now my 70 to 80 game is generational restorer, naming the dances that are longing to happen. You know, part of this is naming your superpower. We've all known that no one in the world has the same fingerprint as you. But with technology now, we know that no one that has ever walked on this planet has the same voice timber as you and has the same eye pigmentation. That's why facial technology and voice technology work. So what does that mean? It means that nobody will see the world the way you see it. No one will voice their truth the way you know it. And no one can do what you can do. You are unique. You are epic. And to then say, then what is my gift? Because I said earlier, the original instruction, use your gifts and dreams for good. My gift is that I now understand is I see the dances that are longing to happen. This is what I am learning about leadership now, which is I can't make you magical. I can only say I see you as magical and I will hold the space for you until that magic can come out and dance. I love the idea that it's generational and that you're seeing the magic in those around you. And that the rock star isn't entirely decommissioned. <laughs> she, she, she may work a little less, but that, that you will be equally rock star in some ways in, in that role. One of the women I coach has given me a scepter and a crown just to remind me that I can call the rock star back anytime I want. <laughs> and one of my colleagues gave me a magic wand. Well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, helping the magic emerge that is already there in our colleagues and our family members and our community members. We are not putting it there. It's there. They own it. They being all of our listeners, all of our clients, our colleagues. It is in the seeing and holding space that then others can see it and feel it. Right. And I won't take no for an answer. 
I will hold the space until you say yes. That's my work. What do you want our listeners to take away? We've got ideas of design thinking. We've talked about the decade game. We've talked about courage and epic. One thing strikes me, and then I'll ask the question again. As we summited Kilimanjaro, you leaned in and took one step at a time. I had a similar, not easy trip. We had a larger group, but one guide was with me and I would take two steps and fall over. And at that point, no liquid remained in my body. Um, So there was the step, step, sick, fall over, step, step, sick, fall over. And he would literally pick me up and put me back on the path. And that does seem to reflect in many cases as leaders, archetypally or metaphorically, there are lots of days that it, it just feels like another step is too much. And yet part of the job is taking the next step and making it look easy, or at least allowing the vulnerability and the trust. If I can do it, people around me can also do it. That seems like an important message to integrate at this point as we are setting out visions for our next decade. And you're saying, I don't, I don't even know what that looks like. You didn't know what shaman would look like. You don't know yet what the next decade will look like. And yet having the courage and the wisdom as an elder to, as you said, strong quads up, lean forward, let my quads and gravity take me that next step. With that as one of the underpinning themes and with an audience of people in leadership roles, what would you like leaders to be thinking about and taking away from this conversation? Yeah, you're bringing me back to that climb. Kilimanjaro actually means difficult journey in Swahili. I guess remember, I'm on my honeymoon now because I've been Kilimanjaro. And my husband, who is um, Rob Evans and is a master at Creating Group Genius, he gave me a mantra. And I did this mantra over and over and over again, 10 hours a day in climbing. Every step, our legs get stronger. Every step, our lungs get stronger. Every step, our hearts get stronger. Every step, our love grows stronger. And that was the mantra over and over again. I actually do think for leaders, it's all about love. You know, I know we don't talk about love a lot, but to know that you are of service, to know that you are of service to a purpose bigger than yourself, to know that you are never out of a job, you might be only temporarily out of a product that you like, because as long as you are showing up in service to this purpose that's larger than yourself, you are doing great work. It doesn't mean that it's easy, one of the reasons I call the decade game a game is who likes to play a boring game? You know, the harder the challenge, the more fun. But what I will say to people is make sure you're playing your game. Because what I find about what makes leaders anxious, resigned, exhausted, angry, is when they're playing someone else's game and they're not playing their own game. When you are on purpose, in your purpose, then everything that's happening is happening for you, not to you. You know, one of the things that I want people to know is that purpose 
isn't some big thing out there. It's the ability every day to know that you can discover meaning for yourself and create meaning for others. It's that simple. And to do that, you've got to love yourself, forgive yourself, know that you are not perfect, not be angry at other people when they are not their best selves, and love into the next step and make the next step generative. Generative for you and generative for the people around you. And that will lead you to goodness. Each of those things you said sound doable, and yet I would say they're not easy at all. Loving self, demonstrating grace to myself. I can demonstrate grace to others, but not me. Do you have a practice that helps you embody love and grace as much to yourself as to others in the world? I need to know at the end of every day that I did my job well. And that's why the decade game is very helpful for me. Because if I am on purpose and I can be that catalytic converter and make sure that I have found something meaningful in whatever happened, and then I can lean into that. And that ennobles me to be able to create meaning for others. Then I'm good. People have a gratitude practice. I have a practice at the end of every day of writing down what I call my tiny mighties. A tiny mighty is what's a little thing that I did, a choice that I made, a decision that I made, or something I chose not to do that is so small, meaning I was totally in my power to do that, but it has the star stuff of what my commitment to becoming is, where I can say, yes, I was a generational restorer today, naming the dances that are longing to happen. Victory is mine. And then I go to bed happy. So having a practice at the end of the day and writing it, writing it. is helpful. Absolutely. And so I have a 10-year journal. It'll say December 16th, 2020, December 16th, 2021, December 16th, 2022, all on one page. And I write my tiny mighties for 10 years so I can see this was my tiny mighty a year ago. This was my tiny mighty two years ago. And I see how much progress I'm making towards becoming. And here's the crazy thing about becoming. The more you lean into who you are longing to become, the more becoming you are, right? So it's about leaning in and breathing. Yes. When you meet someone who really is on purpose, they're very becoming. <laughs> There's a, a wholeness about them, which doesn't mean complete. Wholeness doesn't mean complete. Wholeness comes from holy, hale, healthy. It doesn't mean complete. We are not complete. We are works in progress, and we have been in recovery since the moment we've been born. And we're just trying to get back to ourselves. And we can. We have the power of the universe inside us, and I call that epic. Those are wonderful words to wrap our interview on. We have the power of the universe in us, and that is epic. So please share with our listeners the name of your book again and where they might reach you and where they might learn more about your book. So the book is called Epic, the Women's Power Play Book. You can find it on Amazon or Walmart or Barnes & Noble. You can also reach me at carolyn at mydecadegame.com, and I will answer you. And if I could just add one other thing, I do teach twice a year a Decade Game Masterclass, 
and you can find more information on mydecadegame.com. Maureen, it might be perfect for you. Yes, it might very well be perfect for me. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Carolyn. For our listeners, thank you also for joining us. There's so much wisdom that I'm not able to summarize it at this point. Thank you. Like us, follow us, share Carolyn's information. And if you want to learn more about innovative leadership, please find us at innovativeleadership.com and also on LinkedIn and our newsletter.